In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. Mankind has dreamed about it for decades now, but sometime soon, it will become a reality. There will be permanent bases on the moon. Now, we can debate the timeline of soon when it comes to this, but right now, both NASA and a joint Chinese-Russian venture have committed to this. The space race is back on. How do I know that? Well, NASA Administrator Bill Nelson said two months ago, quote, It's a fact. We're in a space race. But a space race for what? Resources. The moon has tons of them. And whomever can get their base to the right part of the moon first with the right kind of technology to extract those resources will gain a huge edge in the future of space travel and probably back here on Earth as well. The key part, however, is the extraction. Mining in space is going to be hazardous. We already know that it's remote and it will be done in extreme conditions with the help of a lot of robotics. Now, there is a country that checks all those boxes, a country with experience in remote mining and extreme conditions, with excellence in space robotics, and a working relationship already in place with NASA. Yes, that would be us. So, here's how Canada may help mine the moon. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Alex Ellery is the Canada Research Professor in Space Robotics and Space Technology at Carleton University. Hello, Alex. Hi. I want to start by just asking you, when people see the description for this episode or they hear the term moon mining, I'm sure their minds go immediately to science fiction. How far are we from actually being able to attempt this? In fact, uh, the concept of mining the moon goes back to the 1970s, to the latter days of the Apollo program. But it subsequently died down uh, during the 1980s, 1990s, and 2000s, until actually very recently when it's kind of like re-emerged again. In terms of how close are we, I mean, if you look at the lunar, the moon program, for example, from the 1960s, they put people on the moon in less than a decade because they essentially had a blank check. If we have a blank check, we could probably get some you know, mining on the moon within five years, maybe. It's a question of commitment. 
how far are we committed to developing the lunar environment for mining and potential commercial activities? At the moment in Canada, we're very slow off the mark. The US and the Europeans are basically, they're out of the starting blocks already. They've got uh, big programs underway uh, developing the technologies. Canada's basically still in the starting blocks and looking around, trying to figure out which direction in which to run. Before we get into the logistics of it, because uh, that's what I'm fascinated by, and that's what we want to talk to you about. Why do we want to do it? What is up there that's not here on Earth or that's more plentiful up there that would make a big difference for us uh, to go get after this? Well, again, there are two aspects to this. Uh, most people at the moment, uh, particularly in the U.S., are focused on trying to develop some kind of commercial application for, for lunar stuff. The lunar stuff that they're, they're particularly thinking about is water, and water can be split into hydrogen and oxygen, and that, that could be used as fuel and oxidizer, now, essentially for launching things from the moon to, say, Mars or, right. or whatever. So they're trying to create this market which serves a space industry, as it were, or, or some kind of space demand. A self-sustaining base on the moon as well. Yes, that, that would be part of that kind of market. Um, how far we could make it sustaining, that's another question entirely, which I think you'll come to a little bit later. The other aspect, which I think is more important, is the longer-term view, which is how do we make mining the moon relevant to every human being on Earth? And to me, that is the more interesting question. I think there are some practical problems that we need to be solved on Earth or solved for Earth, which space mining and moon mining would potentially contribute to. What are those problems? Energy, clean energy. We've got you know things like solar and, and wind and so on and so forth, and they're, they're, they're ramping up very quickly. But it's questionable whether they can actually provide 100% of our energy needs. And remember, our energy needs are constantly evolving. We're not, I'm not just talking about like uh, emerging countries, you know, getting increasing demands of energy. I'm also talking about as te technology progresses, we have more needs for energy. And currently, it's growing faster than uh, renewable sources can, can expand. And this is likely to continue. Mm -hmm. And to me, the, the obvious solution is solar power satellites. But launching from the, them from Earth would be, A, firstly, too expensive. Secondly, the energy going in would exceed the energy coming out of it. So the only real solution is to industrialize the moon and essentially build them there robotically. That requires a huge commitment to developing the moon as a means to helping our own Earth's environment. What about helium-3, which as I understand it, you know, you mentioned clean energy. Is that the key to really unlocking clean energy on Earth? Helium-3 is an interesting one because this has been uh, banded around for a long time. Taking a step back, if we look at nuclear fusion, which is what helium-3 would be used for, there's, it's true there's, no, there's very little helium-3 on Earth. It's very difficult to, to manufacture. And the moon represents the largest, nearest source of helium-3. There are a couple of issues. One is that the helium-3 is very diffuse, and it'd be, although I wouldn't say it's impossible to extract, it, it certainly would be a challenge to extract and also to keep cold enough to ensure there's no boil-off. So that those are technical issues that would occur on the moon. In terms of the market, yes, fusion is great, or potentially great, but the kind of fusion that we're currently working on is the lowest energy type of fusion process, which is deuterium-tritium. Uh, now. Deuterium-tritium uh, reaction 
requires the lowest amount of energy to make it work. If we go to helium-3 and deuterium, that requires a much higher energy input. We haven't even got deuterium-tritium working in a commercial context yet. The next stage to deuterium-helium-3, that could happen in sometime in the future, but I'm not convinced it's going to be anytime soon. You know, you've got to be, you've got to be talking a minimum of 50, 60 years away. What's the first step that has to happen in order for people to see that this is not uh, an idea, this is not something out of a science fiction story, this is something that we are doing right now? What do we do first and, and how do we do it? The first thing is to just demonstrate that we can actually do something, something not even relatively simple. We can actually take, let's say, lunar regolith, put it into a machine and process it inside that machine and out pops a particular a product, let's say a, a 3D printed product. Essentially, all the elements of this of an industrial chain relatively simply in a small box. Once we can demonstrate that, then that provides us with the opportunity to figure out how to scale it up. When you look at this as a simple problem of space robotics and space technology, um, and you look at it practically, what are the biggest challenges that are going to get in the way of actually uh, extracting resources from the moon? Well, it depends on what resources you want to extract. If you look at the American approach, their focus is primarily on water, and water is, is located primarily in the polar regions. Now, the polar regions are extremely cold. It's around, you know, in these deep craters where you never see the sun, where water's, water ice is collected. The temperature's around about, it's like 40 Kelvin. That's very, very cold. It's only 40 degrees above uh, absolute zero. And we have no experience in doing mining and things like that at these temperatures. There's another op opportunity as well. We could be mining minerals where we're not limited to the, the polar regions. The moon is comprised of oxides and, and silicate minerals. We could extract oxygen from those, and that provides you with the largest proportion of mass required as oxidizer when you mix it with fuel. So we can generate seven-eighths of the mass we require uh, by mining minerals as opposed to my, by mining water. It's a relatively small step to go from extracting oxygen from minerals to extracting metals out of the minerals as well. We don't have the 40 Kelvin environments to deal with in that case. And to me, this this makes better sense. I know you mentioned that um, the water can then be used to uh, do things like launches uh, from the moon towards Mars or wherever else. Are there other things that we'd need to take back to Earth? And, you know, how does that work? I'm trying to imagine like tons of minerals going back and forth uh, and it it feels like the resources required to do that would be prohibitive. Like, what does that actually look like in practice? Not many people are talking about bringing minerals back to Earth, at least at the moment. There was talk a few years ago of bringing back things like platinum-based minerals from asteroids, for example. Hmm. There is a potential possibility of mining the moon for its rare Earth elements, yeah, I'm not really convinced about that, to be perfectly honest, because there are actually resources for rare earths here on Earth, which would probably still be cheaper than bringing them from the moon. But the potential exists to bring things back from the moon. One possibility is you could encase them in silica, which is manufactured on the moon. Silica is used as a, like a re-entry shield material. So we could, in theory, send things back to Earth. but 
it would be very complex to do. You'd have to like have um, thrusters on board to make sure it lands in the you know it essentially enters at the right location. Right. Then you'd have to recover it and, and so on. I can't really see that happening anytime soon. Let's assume we solve for those challenges. What does a world in which we are extracting resources from the moon and using them effectively look like? Well, it goes back to, to what, what I was suggesting earlier, is instead of trying to bring material back from the moon, we should be building uh, devices that stay in space and actually transmit energy back to Earth. So we're not brief physically bringing back any material, but we're actually using lunar material to actually fo- focus to enhance our, our clean energy. You know, deep sea manganese nodules and things like that, I think are going to be far easier to access than uh, bringing things back from the moon. One final thing. Do you have any doubt that this is at some point going to become a reality? Are we just too far down this road and, and we need what's on the moon too much? Well, I, I, I was very, very young when uh, Apollo happened. Um, and the assumption was that at the end of Apollo, I always thought that by the time I grew up, I'd be living on the moon. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> but it never happened. But we're talking about that now. That's the plan for, for NASA and for China and the Russians, right? Yes. What I think is different is that we now have a private sector which is involved. That changes the game quite dramatically because it pro- applies commercial pressures. Elon Musk has made it quite clear that he wants to go to Mars. That's his primary focus. And he's using the moon as a stepping stone to get him to Mars. But I do think it really, if we're going to make it robust, we really have to make it relevant to everybody on Earth. And I think clean energy is really the only way we can make space mining, space exploration, uh, industrialization of the moon relevant to people on Earth. Alex, thank you so much for this. Been a pleasure. Absolute delight. Thank you. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. Heather Exner-Perot is the Senior Fellow and Director of Natural Resources, Energy, and Environment at the McDonald laurier Institute. Now that we understand a little bit of the science at play here, she will walk us through the geopolitical implications. Hello, Heather. Hello. Thanks for having me. I want to start just because I have no idea here what rules currently govern, like the exploitation of minerals in space, and I guess especially on the moon? Great question. It just so happens that, you know, I think when man first walked on the moon, you know, nations started to get involved in trying to govern outer space. And so the one that most people refer to is the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, and it does include the moon uh, and other celestial bodies. And then there was a series after that, uh, for example, international liability on damage, you know, in space, um, governing activities on the moon and other celestial bodies, uh, registration of objects launched into outer space. So it isn't, uh, you know, a terra nullius in a way. It isn't a Wild West. There has been some consideration, but of course, some of it is still theoretical. And so mining on the moon is, is still in a gray zone. The other thing about international law is that all treaties are opt-in hmm. um, under our Westphalian system. No one has to follow 
uh, any treaties and you can, you know, come out of a treaty at any time if you think it's in your interest. And so that is the the caveat uh, that at the end of the day, you know, sometimes might makes right and people can pull out of treaties if they don't think it's fair to them. And of course, we want a system that benefits everybody. If you can create a system and a treaty that benefits everybody, then then you could expect that everyone will abide by it. So it sounds like it's not technically the Wild West, but anybody can treat it as the Wild West at any time. Well, I think, for example, we say that, you know, there's no declaring of sovereignty. You can't plant an American flag on the moon and say, now this is ours. It's American. And there is some precedent, you know, in in the Antarctic. Right. And we've done a pretty good job with the Antarctic Treaty to say this is, you know, no one owns this. We all have the same usage rights. We all have the same understanding. There will be no military activities here. And that's worked very well for a few decades. So I think that lends some promise that we can, you know, do similar things uh, in space. But I think space probably has more political and military kinds of aspects, too, that maybe makes it a little trickier than Antarctica to decide on things. But the point for this conversation for moon mining is that we can't own the moon. But I think if you go up there and are able technically to be able to get some resources back, there's no one that can say that you can't do that. And that's where we get into, um, I guess, a second space race. Uh, If this is now something that's possible or will be in the near future, what is the timeline here and who's racing to figure this out? Well, it's all the usual suspects. So obviously NASA the Canadian Space Agency and and European Space Agency are are aligning on their Artemis missions. And that's why it was in in the news that was in December uh, when they had their first uh, mission going back to the moon and plan to have uh, men on the moon, humans on the the moon again by the early 2030s. And that's not a long time, you know, Mm -hmm. coming from the resource extractive uh, industry. Seven years is not a long time to figure out, you know, how to set up a mine, uh, let alone to do it kind of in the vacuum of space and with all those different challenges. So both, um, you know, the Artemis program and then Russia and China have jointly uh, agreed in 2021 that they would set up their own permanent lunar um, presence, lunar base on the South Pole of the Moon also. And so those are the two missions, again, that are racing. Obviously, the Moon is a big place. And some of the the competition comes in the fact that we both want to go somewhere where we know there's lots of water, um, that that would help establish the the permanent presence. And so getting to the best spots on the moon is is maybe where there's this element of competition. You mentioned that's where uh, the Canada Space Agency comes into play. What role can we play and and how would we play it? What do we bring to the table? Obviously, we're not uh, a superpower, but what can we do? Well, that's a great question. And there is lots we can do if if only we have the political will you know this is an ex- this is expensive to go into space and nasa no doubt will lead the way but again this is where moon mining comes in you know we can say well that's probably a really great area a really great niche for canada why is that well we're excellent at mining right but we do a lot of the the finance of mining the business of mining we are you know world leaders in that kind of a thing so it's not just the extraction that we're good at we're good at the business of mining and then you know the simple fact of of the geography that we do mine in remote off-grid difficult to access locations mm. so the, obviously remote mining is is up our alley if you were look to any country you know i think you would say oh canada there's some similarities there you can do those things and then there's the robotic you know, everyone's familiar with the space arm. And so I think a big part of it is the operations, the logistics of mining. And Canada is pretty good at operating in space and and doing robotics in space. And some of the other, you know, maybe usual suspects on the mining side 
would not also have those particular skill sets. So right. not only do we have great mining and remote mining capacity, human resources in the country, but also we do have space experience. And so combining those two kind of very niche um, fields into one. So it seems like, you know, of all the things, you know, that Canada can and should contribute to bringing humankind back to the moon, seems like this is a good niche for us to fill. But you mentioned we still require the political will, and I kind of want to know where we're at in that process, if we've committed to anything, if we're involved in this, because I know um, to the south of us, President Biden has already talked up uh, the Artemis missions and going back to the moon, kind of selling it as that existential dream. Has Canada said anything about what we'll be doing? It's very interesting. And even I came into this thinking, moon mining, really? You know, like this seems like a far out idea. But again, it's it's not primarily to bring resources to bring, you know, say rare earths or, or you know, lithium or, or platinum back to earth. It's primarily to set up uh, in the in the medium term that, that long-term human presence on the moon itself. And so that you have to use moon resources to be on the moon. And so, we, you know, where I've started looking to it is that our critical minerals um, strategy does identify, you know, space mining. Hmm. So that tells me that there's kind of more widespread mainstream recognition that this is happening and it's going to be a thing. And then the Canadian Space Agency itself is promoting it, has spent some money, giving some seed money to develop the concept of space mining, of how, how it might happen. You know, what are the technical challenges that we need to be focused on? So there is some probably, I would say, under the radar support in the federal government. And again, very much following in, in NASA's lead and the Americans' lead. But it is on the radar. There's some little bit of money coming in, but I think is expensive to get into. And some of it is just, you know, is there's maybe not a near-term business case for it. It's mostly being paid by by public dollars to get on the moon. And in the medium long term, though, there might be some very well some economic advantages to being very good at space mining. Given the tension um, in the world today and the fact that, you know, there are potentially billions and billions of dollars at stake up on the moon. How much uh, fuel could this kind of resource race, I guess, add to the fire? Well, that's a good question. And to be fair, the first time we got into space, you know, in the 50s and 60s, it was the cold, you know, it was the Cold War. Right. I'm sure that very much sparked competition, incentivized competition that you just didn't want the other side to be better at something. You wanted to prove that you were, you know, more dominant and, and more of the great power. And then we had a, you know, a nice couple of decades where there was really great cooperation in the International Space Station. And of course, with the war in Ukraine, we are, are seeing a lot of that fracture Russia has said that they're going to pull out of the International Space Station. And again, China and Russia making their own plans to have their own lunar base. You know, the moon is one thing and the resources on the moon is one thing. But space itself is very strategic militarily, obviously. Mm -hmm. I actually had the chance to go to the Pentagon in December and and we went and saw the Space Force. You know, right. of course, the Americans have, have a branch, a new branch at the Pentagon of the Space Force. And I got my little Space Force water bottle. But this is, you know, this is serious. This is not science fiction. These are very real security threats and risks. And hopefully we can, again, manage it like the Outer Space Treaty kind of guides us to so we can all benefit that we don't militarize this space so that all of humankind can benefit from advances in the science in this area. Heather, thank you for this. Like I said, fascinating and a little frightening. Yes, thanks so much for having me. Heather Exner-Perot is the Senior Fellow and Director of Natural Resources, Energy, Environment at the McDonald-Laurier Institute. And our first guest, Alex Ellery, 
is the Canada Research Professor in Space Robotics and Space Technology at Carleton University. That was The Big Story. For more from us, including all sorts of episodes about the future of space, you can head to The Big Story podcast. You can also find us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. You can email us, hello at TheBigStoryPodcast.ca. And you can, of course, call us and leave a message, 416-935-5935. The Big Story is available in absolutely every podcast player. One day, somebody will listen to this podcast in a base on the moon. I just have to keep this job long enough for that to happen. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. Have a great weekend. We have a surprise for you on Saturday, and we'll talk again Monday. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.